You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. I'm your host, Fatima Al-Sayed. On this weekly talk show, we invite experts to take us through their journeys as professionals in their fields. If you have any questions for the panelists, you can always ask them in the comments section on our live stream, and we'll get to them throughout the show. You can also ask your questions before or after our show on our Inspire platform. Inspire is a question and answer platform for career advice in our Shia community. It's available on the Emoji app and on Android and iOS. On today's show, we want to welcome Kamila Ibrahim. Uh, Kamila is a master's student and data scientist who is pursuing master's of information in human-centered data science at the University of Toronto. It'll all make more sense once she's on the show. Um, she has a vast uh, experience in her field, which is amazing. And she's found a way to uh, really get both of her passions um, into what she's doing. So we welcome Kamila. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm really excited because truly you've really combined um, everything you love into one. Yeah. Um, and I think that has been hard to kind of figure out how to do. Um, but I think as I was mentioning before, it's, um, it's really, it's, it's exciting and there's a lot of different things to do in tech. So I'm excited to, to sort of share that. And you've got so much insight into the tech world, um, in a, through an aspect that we don't really hear about much. Um, so can you start off, start us off by telling us about your background, um, starting from your bachelor's to going into your master's? Sure. So I started my degree in health sciences, so completely unrelated to what I'm doing now. Um, but I think what I liked about the sciences was sort of the like technical rigor that it offers. So I always liked working with numbers and that sort of thing. And I think health was a cool kind of way for me to be introduced to the policy space. So I did a lot of work in health policy and I did a couple, my um, undergraduate degree was a co-op. So that meant that we were able to, um, we were able to work in different places and kind of figure out what we liked. And that was hugely helpful for me. Mm -hmm. So I did a couple work uh, placements. So I worked at the United Nations. I worked at the Canadian federal government and I liked the policy aspect of things. I decided I liked the health aspect of things a little bit less. So I switched majors. I switched into economics and within economics, I really enjoyed the math or the statistical part of economics. And so I switched again into econometrics. Um, and so econometrics is really the statistical side of economics. And so you are using big numbers, big data sets to glean insights from economic trends. So mm -hmm. um, central banks use a lot of econometrics. Those are kind of the applications. Um, and then I knew I wanted to do graduate school because I like researching. It's kind of what I enjoy doing. And so when I was looking for graduate programs, I wanted to find something that allowed me to use my technical skills, but I didn't want to just be coding at a computer all day because I also wanted to do something that would have applications into fields that were important to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I found human-centered data science. So data science is a cross almost between statistics and computer science. So again, you're using big numbers and you're using a lot of computational power to gain insights from that, from those, um, from those large data sets and those numbers. And human-centered data science is taking those insights and applying them to sort of context or situations, whether that's 
policy or uh, research or analysis or even the development of new technologies, but it always has a sort of like human centric aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I'm a year into a two year program and I'm hopefully inshallah gonna be graduating in April. Inshallah. Um, there's a lot of big words that you threw out there. Um, so can you give us uh, just like real life examples of how um, this would be applied, um, you know, within people, within daily interactions? Yeah, absolutely. So my focus in particular, like I, I started my degree off very interested in bias in technology um, and sort of how we think of technology a lot of the time as being neutral but at the end of the day, there are people behind it and there are people who are creating technology. So technology isn't neutral. Um, and I particularly am very interested in the way that that impacts Muslim communities. I live in Toronto, so my research is always focused on Muslim communities in the Toronto area um, or Canadians more generally. Um, so an example of that is um, in, in Canada, and I think in the States too, we have child welfare systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so children, who are maybe not in the best environments, go through child welfare systems, they can be placed in foster homes or they can be placed in government run uh, social service centers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the time the matching that is being used, so the way that a child would be matched with a potential placement is facilitated through an algorithm or some sort of technological structure. And what we're finding is that those algorithms and that that technology that's being used is biased against certain populations. So certain populations are more likely to, the way that you would say it is like fall through the cracks or less likely to be in a match that is going to be suitable for them. Um, And Muslim children and and especially Indigenous children in Canada happen to be in those populations Mm -hmm. that are going to be less likely to be taken care of within that system. So my job as a technologist or somebody who's interested in in these kinds of biases and the way that technologically enabled uh, biases are perpetuated in society is to take that algorithm and and think about it and deconstruct it and be like, why is this why is this having worse outcomes for my community and how do we make it better? Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of policy and ethics that are related to tech, which is the main balance that you're going for. Yeah, exactly. And I think like a lot of the time you have a lot of tech experts and you have a lot of policy experts, but you don't always have a cross. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always tell like I, uh, I tutor undergrad students and I always tell them like, even if you know you want to be a computer scientist, take an ethics course, like take like one ethics course, because mm-hmm. it will help you be a better computer scientist. And likewise, even if you know you want to be a policy expert, it's always a good idea to be well-rounded and just even have like a basic understanding of how things work. It'll make you a better policy expert. Yeah, very true. <laughs> um, is there a straightforward path um, or are there different routes to get to uh, get into ethical tech and the policy space? I definitely think that there are multiple routes. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I said, if you're a computer scientist, but you're interested in these kinds of things, maybe like take ethics courses on as your electives, even though I know computer scientists don't get that many electives and that much flexibility, um, at least in Canada. But um, if, and same thing, like if you're a policy student and you're interested in sort of tech policy, there are, I think we're seeing more programs that are catered towards this kind of interdisciplinary space. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of the time I think disciplines are very siloed. So breaking down those silos and going out of your comfort zone isn't always the most straightforward path, but Mm -hmm. I definitely think it's doable. Where does your passion for technology stem from? I don't know. I think working in economics, like I've always really liked the sort of like 
logical rigor. Like I like working with numbers. I like math. Um, so, and then I think like, even just the fact that like technology is so ubiquitous and it literally touches every single aspect of our lives, especially during COVID, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything we're doing is having, is taking place online, whether that's school or work or talking to our friends or like my family has like big zoom calls. So like we are using technology to do everything. And it's really interesting to understand how when technology mediates those interactions and those relationships, how they change and and how that changes society. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you really wanted that human part, right? Human aspect mm-hmm. into what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us more about your research, like the qualitative and quantitative uh, parts of your research and how, how that human um, interaction applies? Yeah, so um, I like consider myself to be, like you said, like a mixed methods researcher. Mm -hmm. So a lot of qualitative aspects and a lot of quantitative aspects. Um, So the qualitative side of things is understanding people, right? So Mm -hmm. it's doing, for example, designing an interview or designing a survey. It's being mindful of when you are speaking to certain populations, what should you be what should you be asking them? What should you maybe not be asking them? How is it, how do you respectfully interact with populations and respectfully conduct interviews? So mm-hmm. that's the kind of qualitative side. And I think the qualitative side is important because these are things that numbers alone, so the quantitative side alone won't be able to give you. So for example, if I have data on um, Muslims in Canada and I know what they like to do, or I know how frequently they do X, right? Um, I can trend that and I can understand like, okay, like they're going here a lot of the time, they're maybe less engaged in these parts of whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But until you actually have those one-on-one conversations to understand people's lived experiences, it's very difficult to get meaningful data. Um, And and it's hard to not bring a lot of your own biases in when you're doing quantitative data, Mm -hmm. because I know people say numbers don't lie, but numbers can lie sometimes. You do have to be a little bit mindful of those things as a data scientist, and especially, I think, as a data scientist who's interested in more human aspects and human elements. You mentioned that you um, specifically are trying to get uh, research um, on Indigenous and Muslim communities. And right now, Muslim and Indigenous communities are one of the most targeted, right, around the world. There's uh, the most, uh, they're most affected, not most affected um, within our global sphere, but right now within the news, within the media, we're hearing a lot about different things um, that are happening. So how important is it to really build trust in research, Um, especially when you are doing things within communities that have been um, harmed by the media in the past or harmed by research or, you know, Yeah, no, I think, and that's great that you brought that up because building trust is actually a huge part of the research that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll give you an example. The example that I kind of researched over the summer was contact tracing apps. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we know that contact tracing apps are hugely important to stop the spread of COVID. Um, We want people to use them, but in a society like Canada, where you can't force people to use contact tracing apps because that would violate our civil liberties, you have to have voluntary adoption. You can't have voluntary adoption if people don't trust you. Mm-hmm. And so, again, like the communities that have been historically targeted by public infrastructure, so Black Canadians, Indigenous mm-hmm. Canadians, Muslim Canadians, are less likely to trust in those public infrastructures and are therefore less likely to download contact tracing apps because they don't trust the technology, right? Mm-hmm. So I think like 
it's very important to understand how the historical legacies and the way that like communities are treated manifests itself in technology adoption, policy adoption, like all of these different different ways that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And I think technologists and policymakers now are understanding like building trust is hugely important. So um, in the States, for example, black communities have been disproportionately targeted by the police for years, right? So they have historically less trust in policing infrastructures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think like understanding the history, understanding the lived experiences of people is hugely important, not only to building trust, but also understanding why the trust isn't there. Mm-hmm. Is it enough to just understand a community or um, is it better to be a part of that community and have a, a snippet of that lived experience in order to conduct research in an ethical way? That's yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's a it's a little bit of a tension amongst researchers mm-hmm. as to whether or not how involved or how much burden should we place on a on a historically marginalized community. Yeah. So for example, if we know that indigenous communities in Canada have historically been mistreated and marginalized and ignored by policymakers, is it then ethical for us to go into those communities and expect them to participate in creating the solution? Or should it be on us as Canadians and as um, policymakers and, and folks who have not been have have not had that burden placed on them to create a solution? Um, I def- so in in sort of tech terms, you'd call that like participatory design. And so that's including the people who the technology is being used in as participants in the in the design. So participatory design. Um, I definitely think that there are limits to participatory design, but I think that it can be useful. Um, another way that it's useful sort of outside of the like ethical tech world, but is in like uh, creation of new technologies, right? So if I want to create a new technologies for seniors, I'm going to go and survey a bunch of seniors and then they're going to tell me what they want, what they don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's very dependent on context, I think. Um, and I think like the best way as a researcher to approach those problems, whether you're designing commu- uh, technology for a community that has been marginalized or not, is to just be very respectful, ensure that the people are like compensated adequately, like ensure that their boundaries are being respected. Um, yeah, I think like and if you're in a university environment, there are all sorts of like ethics boards that help you navigate those those spaces and, th- and that journey. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that that it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting way to do research. Yeah, definitely. Um, one question that comes to mind is: Have you been approached by um, any like anyone who wants to get into this field but was uh, sort of hesitant? Um, you know, someone who is a person of color, um, you know, from the Muslim community. Um, and what questions have uh, they sort of posed, or what kind what kinds of uh, worries have they had? Yeah, um, I think so. I like I mentioned, I, I tutor and I mentor like younger students within my university. Um, so that hasn't been specific to any sort of like racialized or, or faith group. Um, but I often get questions from my undergrad institution is very STEM focused. Mm-hmm. So I often get questions from students who think of computer science or who think of data science or math or whatever it is as a sort of um, very industry headed field. So I'm going to work for Google or I'm going to work for Microsoft. And Mm -hmm. that's great. And that's awesome. Um, But Google and Microsoft also need and they also hire people who have a more interdisciplinary skill set. So I often tell them, like, if you're interested in something and you want to pursue it, don't feel like your options will be limited if you have a broader 
range of, uh, of of skill sets. I actually think that that's a that's a plus. Um, so I've met, I've actually been mentored by a lot of computational social scientists, and they're really the people who are at that intersection of computational methods and social sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think personally, I think like the trends that I'm seeing is that the tech space is headed to a place where they're increasingly going to need those people because they're going to need people who understand technology and understand what people need from technology in order to create better and more successful and more viable and more commercially available tech, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So my advice is always like, if you're interested in something, you will find a way to make it useful and viable professionally. So I definitely think like, especially at the beginning of your undergrad or your degree or whatever it is, just cast your net as widely as possible and Mm -hmm. um, talk to as many people as possible too. Yeah. Um, what core like hard skills and soft skills do you need to be a successful researcher? I think so if you want to, it depends on like obviously the space in which you want to research. Mm-hmm. I think if you want to be in a tech space um, that is more computer science focused, you definitely need to have your core like computer science skills, quantitative skills, um, some math is always great. Mm-hmm. Um, which are courses that you can obviously pick up at the undergrad level. I think in terms of more research oriented things, um, if you're interested in those kinds of things, most universities have a research methods course that teaches you how to design a a research question. How do you design a survey? How do you design an interview? How do you go Mm -hmm. about that process? Um, And that's the place where you'll learn the sort of like ethical considerations that you need to be mindful of. So what ethics board governs this research? Like, where do I learn those things? Um, yeah, and I think most most universities or most institutions have places that you can learn those things. Um, oftentimes I hear that the hardest part of uh, research is actually choosing the field of research that you want to go into. So what advice do you have for students who are actually in that position right now? Yeah, it, and that's definitely true. Um, so I think I think at the graduate level, and this is something that I didn't know when I started, but um, if you go into a master's or if you go into a PhD, you have the op- option in a lot of places, I, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of places, you have the option to be cross-advised. So what that means is like for someone like myself, I'm very interested in computer science and a lot of the work I do would traditionally fall under that faculty but I also have a background in economics and I love economics. And I also wanna do something that is more maybe like historical leaning. So what I can do if you're someone like me is construct a committee of one computer science professor, one economics professor, and maybe one sociology professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be your committee that kind of guides you through the research process. So um, I definitely think like choosing a faculty is very important because those are gonna be the, First of all, that's where your funding comes from, and funding is important to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also going to be the folks that are guiding you throughout your journey, and like th- that's going to be your support when you're doing research. Um, so it's definitely important to talk to a lot of people in a faculty if you're considering entering that faculty. Mm-hmm. Talk to as many people as possible, um, but don't feel limited. Like if I go into computer science or if I go into economics, I can only do that. When you're approaching these people, um, what advice do you have for people who are sort of scared of approaching, you know, someone who um, is a professor or is, you know, in in that position? Um, And what, like, how, which ways should they approach people, um, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense? 
Yeah, no, I, this is something that I had to learn because like, I was kind of a little bit like, oh, like they don't want to hear from some like random student in Toronto. Like, they don't know me, but I think you will be pleasantly surprised by how kind strangers can be. Um, and especially like if you have a connection to their research or if you have a community connection to them, um, it'll be like that, that process will just be sped up a little bit. But I, I think like, don't be shy. The worst that a person can tell you is like, hey, no, sorry, I'm swamped right now. I can't, can't talk. Um, but like talking to people in different fields and, and it can be anything. Like if you have a connection to them and someone can facilitate a warm introduction, great. If you don't cold message them or cold email them and just say something along the lines of like, Hey, I'm this person. I'm really interested in your work because of this. This is what I, this is the question that I have. And I think a lot of people are really open, especially in a research environment because faculty members, a lot of the time are recruiting students. Um, and a lot of the time they have funding. And so if you want an RA ship or if you like a research assistant position, um, or if you want to, for example, be a master's student under them, they're looking for that, right? So if you mm -hmm. demonstrate like a respectful uh, interest in their work, I think a lot of the time people will be open to helping you. Does work-life balance exist as a grad student? <laughs> um, it should, and it definitely can. <laughs> I don't know if it, if it exists for me yet, but it's something I'm working on. Um, I think especially during COVID, I think a lot of people have had hard, a hard time like kind of drawing that like work-life boundary. Mm -hmm. I know I have, um, but it's important, especially because like if you go into a PhD or if you go into a master's program, like that research is continuous and it takes a really long time to do. So yeah. you wanna make sure that at the onset or even like an undergrad, like give yourself boundaries, try to stick to them, easier said than done, um, but definitely something that we can all do. <laughs> what are the hobbies that you like to do um, or you enjoy that you want to get back to? Yeah, um, I haven't really had time recently. I used to like love baking in undergrad. Um, I made my mom buy me all of this like baking supplies and all of these like cake products. I'm like, I'm going to bake cakes, but um, <laughs> they're kind of sitting in my basement right now. And that's something that I definitely want to get back to. I think mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to at the end of the summer, I have like three weeks off. So yeah, I'm going to be spoiling my family with a lot of baked goods. Um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. And baking's a nice stress reliever. So it is, right. it totally is. Yeah, it fully is. And also like just with COVID and because I'm, at, I'm literally at this desk all day, I've been mm -hmm. forced to go for walks every day and that's been really helpful too. Yeah, especially sitting for long hours. <laughs> can be so dangerous yeah. um what is your goal professionally and personally like what kind of impact do you want to create yeah that's a great question <laughs> I think professionally I I definitely want to be able to use the skills that I've gained mm -hmm. um probably within a research environment maybe within industry um and so also I didn't mention this but research doesn't necessarily mean academic research there's also a lot of industry research positions that are opening up and that are available um, so personally, I don't know exactly like where I'd want to be, but I definitely think I want to be within a research space or within a research capacity. Mm -hmm. um, I like problem solving. So anything that lets me do that, I think I would um, I would kind of want to lean towards. Um, and personally, I think just tech evolves so quickly and there's so many different moving parts and there's so many different aspects of the tech space that you can be in. Um, and so I think for me, it's just like to keep interested in that space and to like know, know what's going on um, and just like keep working within that space. Are there any um, sort of misconceptions or um, things that don't people don't really realize about uh, your career that you want to um, let them know? 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of people think that like the tech space is like very exclusive and you have to have had um, whatever X degree and usually that's some sort of STEM degree to enter the field. And that that is true of a lot of positions, but there are a lot of positions for people who are interested in other things. So if you're interested in, if you have an arts degree or in, in some sort of like political science or sociologist, those are the people who a lot of the time end up managing the technology in big companies because again, like you need that societal, you need that policy lens. Um, and so I think that's the biggest misconception is that it's it's kind of held these positions are reserved for folks who have certain degrees and that's not the case like you can you can find a place in tech regardless of your your academic background or if you didn't go to school there's still a place for you mm -hmm. and how does a day in the life of your job look like um, you know people I think people often think that researchers are always just there on their computers the whole entire time which is a big part of it right yeah but can you let us into a little bit of uh, your experience yeah so um, I'll give you two so as a student um, obviously a lot of my work is me with my professors and having them revise drafts of things that I write um, a lot of the work that I do as a student researcher is talking to different communities. Mm -hmm. So that's all been like facilitated virtually throughout throughout COVID. But in a regular time, that can look like going and doing field interviews in different communities. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it can be talking to stakeholders. So I'm really mm -hmm. interested in uh, the experiences of this community. Maybe I need to go speak to that community leader, right? Um, so that's and then of course as a student you have like a million extracurriculars that you're always doing but um as a researcher so right now i'm interning at a think tank um and as a researcher a lot of what i do is just reading and writing um and thinking about different policy ideas or different technological advances or trends um and as a as a, as a research institute we produce uh sort of projects and research uh uh, like I would say like a project or like papers and that kind of thing, which are then peer reviewed by other folks in the field and that kind of thing. So you're right, it is a lot of computer work, especially during COVID, um, but hopefully in regular times, there's a lot of in-person things that you do as well. Do you have to be a really good writer? Um, I think you do, but, uh, but writing is something I think that can, you can build, right? Mm -hmm. So I, always, I have always been told and I strongly believe that the best writers are people who read a lot because you will kind of pick up on how other people write. Um, but yeah, writing and be able to being able to communicate ideas clearly and effectively, especially in tech, because you're taking kind of complicated constructs and you're trying to distill them for an audience that isn't necessarily technical. So yeah, being able to communicate clearly, I think is a huge thing that you need to be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, is there advice that you can give to current high school or college students that can help them to either make a decision to improve their chances for a job further on if they're considering your profession. Um, so for example, courses to take, internships to do, or extracurriculars they can enter. Yeah, I think it very much depends on um, sort of what you're interested in, right? Mm -hmm. So my advice for, for like a computer science undergrad will be different from my advice for like a policy undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, but I think regardless of whether, of where you are in that space, Personally, the thing that has helped me the most is just networking and talking to people who have jobs that I think are cool. And then I'll be like, well, how'd you do that? And then they tell you and then they can kind of like put you on to things that you didn't even know existed. Um, and so, yeah, I think like that's that's my biggest advice is just don't be shy and ask people if you're interested in their work to help you and to talk about their work um, in terms of like courses to take or internships to take kind of the same thing, like really just follow what you're interested in, I think is what has helped me the most. 
Um, and in terms of like organizations to intern for, don't do unpaid internships. Don't make the mistake that I made. Number one advice. <laughs> yeah, don't do unpaid internships. It's a scam. Um, yeah, I think like, again, just go to an organization whose values align with your values. Go to an organization that is going to value your work and pay you, especially as an undergrad. UN internships are not paid. Um, don't recommend, but, <laughs> um, unless you're super interested in that work. But yeah, definitely that would be my advice. And we've come almost come to the end of our show, unfortunately. But what is your final piece of, of advice for our listeners today? Um, I think just cast your net as widely as possible and be as like well-rounded in your studies as you can. I know not all students have the opportunity to do that, but if you do have the chance to take electives or to, to do work placements and outside of your faculty and your program, absolutely do that. Thank you so much, Camilla, for um, all of your advice today. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we come to an no, end? No, but thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It was our pleasure. You were just listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. If you miss this or future shows, you can always hear the replay on the You Mentor website under prior talk shows. And you can also listen to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Make sure to tune in next week at 3 p.m. for another show. Emoja Outreach Foundation, uniting and empowering the Shia community.